0: Encourage you, if you haven't done so already, to open up your Bible. Uh, I think on the screen behind me, there is the page numbers, because it would be really important. We're going to try to cover almost three chapters of Scripture this morning as we finish up, get close to finishing up uh, our book of 1 Samuel, our series of who will be king in 1 Samuel. We're nearing to the end, and I think uh, in two weeks we'll be ending the book. And we've seen that this. The book of 1 Samuel is about a story for God providing himself a king over his people, Israel. A story that began not just in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1, but about a thousand years ago, when God called a man named Abraham out of Ur and brought him into the land and made a promise to him that Abraham's offspring would be a people of God's very own, and God would give them a land. God that would rule over them and bless them and love Him. Now we see that working out in the book of Genesis and as we go forward in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, we see the promise starting to be fulfilled as God called people out of Egypt to be a very own people of His own. And then we fast forward to Judges and Joshua and we see that God indeed is working out the promise that He will give them a land. And now in 1 Samuel, We've seen that God is establishing his rule, his kingship over his people. But like all stories, when we get down to the details, things are not quite that easy, linear, or straightforward. The Bible is indeed a very real book, presenting life in reality, life as it is, life as we know it. And sometimes reality is confusing, confounding, and sometimes just odd. And I think we see this in our text here this morning. It's a very thrilling story, but we're really not sure what to make of it. I know I've been thinking for a month about this text, and I'm still really not sure what to make of it, what to do with it. So what I thought we'd do this morning is instead of me making some key points, I thought we would just go to the text together and ask some very basic questions of the text and see where that takes us. In fact, I'm going to propose it. We asked six questions of the text this morning, and these six questions can be used to ask of any text in the Bible, and I think actually will advance our understanding when we ask these basic questions of who, what, how, why, when, and where, okay? So let's turn to chapter 27, verses 1 through 4, and the question we have before us clearly is, who exactly is David with? You may remember back in chapter 16, David was anointed by God to be the king of the Israelites. David is anointed, but he's not yet enthroned even now. Saul is still the recognized king. And we've been waiting quite a while for David to take over, haven't we? Years, in fact. Many years, in fact. And it doesn't seem to be getting any closer to happening and David knew, he knew he wasn't supposed to lift his hand against Saul, God's anointed, by taking the throne in a, by force or a coup. But for us as readers, and even David himself, we have no idea of how David will become king or when that will actually happen. And to make matters worse, we've seen over and over again, Saul keeps chasing David in fits of envy, and jealousy, trying to kill him. So maybe, as we come into chapter 7, 27, David's had enough. Verses 1 and 2 certainly make us think so, don't they? Our text wants us, as we look at those two verses, to at least sympathize with David. It's exhausting to live on the run. Not sure where to go next? David needs to find some place where Saul's spies won't encroach and lurch around a His him and his men. But then we get to verse 2 of chapter 27, and I think there are some of the most chilling words of the book of 1 Samuel. You'll see there in the middle of verse 2 these words He went over. David went over. And the the words in Hebrew there are much more stronger. David crossed over. See, he didn't just get away from Saul. David went over to the one place, the worst place you could possibly imagine, Israel's sworn enemy, the Philistines. And if David indeed does cross over to the Philistines, surely this whole story started 800 to 1,000 years ago would be over. The appointed soon to be king in Israel, gone, nowhere to be found. The plan that God would have a king after his own heart? Dead. Crossing the line from Israel on into Philistia to the king of Gath, as we read, well, that is a problem, a major problem. Who is David with? The appointed king of Israel is now with the sworn enemies of Israel. Why would David do this? Well, our text this morning gives us the answer straightforward. In in verse 1, it says, David crossed over to escape from Saul. And then we see in verse 4 that his plan actually worked. Saul no longer sought David. But if we're honest, at least I think this answer is very unsatisfying. Given what we've learned about David's last many years, hasn't David been told again and again by different people, that God himself will carry him through to the throne? Hasn't David, in all sorts of situations, in many different trials, been protected by God? Why flee now? Back in chapter 22, verse 5, David was in Moab, a similar enemy-type state against Israel. And a prophet named Gad was raised up, and Gad said to David, David, Do not remain in this stronghold. Depart and go back to the land of Judah. Now, the last time I preached in this pulpit, I was up here preaching on Jonah chapter 1. And when I read this text this morning, these first four verses, I can't help but think of Jonah 1. It's very similar. Is David pulling a Jonah like reversal on God, on Israel? Instead of accepting his calling, to stay in Israel and trust and wait for God is David fleeing his call, going in the opposite direction, in fact the worst direction he could go in, towards the Philistines. Well, let's, let's ask our next question to see if we can figure out how this story unfolds. What did David actually do when he was with the Philistines? That's verses 5 through 11. And as Charlene read to us, David goes to Gath and visits the king of Akish. again. We saw that again earlier in 1 Samuel. And he goes to the king and says, hey, listen, I need some land for me, my 600 men, and about 1,000 women and children so that we won't be a bother to you. We don't want to be in your, in your space. Could you give us another land for us to live in? Well, the tension's already rising from verses 1 through 4 because of what we said, but did you notice in verse 5 how this really escalates the tension? Did you see how David refers to himself? David calls himself Achish's servant. That's right. The God-appointed king of Israel goes to the sworn enemy of God's people and lays himself at that king's feet, and calls himself a servant. It really is scandalous. It's similar to the political jockeying we see going on during elections every cycle that they come around. Someone's past is brought up, and they try to show that he or she has done something thoroughly un-American. You can't have a president or a senator who's unpatriotic, can you? Well, in the same way here, you can't have a king of God's people like David is appointed to be who fails the pro-Israel test, can you? Is David a traitor? Well, we do sympathize that it could be fear or exhaustion that led him in verse 1 to say, one day I'm just going to perish at the hand of Saul. I'm tired of running. It could be fear and exhaustion. And we, though not right, we sympathize with that. But it seems to be, at least this far in the text, there could be something more nefarious going on, isn't there? So let's continue reading our text to figure this out. So Achish grants David an outpost called Ziklag, which at the time the Philistines owned. And David took his whole brood there and they lived and encamped out there. So, what does David do in his year and a half that he was in Ziklag? Well, let look again at verses 8 through 11. Verse 8, David and his men went up and made raids against the Gershites, the Gerzites, and Amalekites, for they were the inhabitants of the land from the old, as far as shore to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man or woman alive, and he would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkins, the camels, the garments, and come back to Achish. And Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? And David would say, against the Negev of Judah, against the Negev of the Jeremites, against the Negev of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring the news to Gath, thinking lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. You see what's going on here? This whole endeavor may not be treason after all, but it actually may be a game of highbrow espionage. David goes to Ziklag and starts making raids in a bunch of places. And if you look closely at those names in verse 8, and you were to go back to Numbers 33 or Deuteronomy chapter 7, you'll see those same names listed back then in the books of the law. Those names and those peoples were the places that should have been expelled from the land way back when Joshua came over the Jordan River to inhabit the promised land. Those places should now have already been considered Israel. But what David seems to be doing is what should have been done centuries before. It could be that David is finally executing God's command, left far too undone by previous leaders in Israel. And if indeed this is David's plan, it is clever, isn't it? Knowing that someday he would be the king of Israel, but he had to use his time wisely, now he had to wait for Saul to be removed... Was David wisely advancing the kingdom of Israel, all while being undercover in the Philistine area? Perhaps that's what's going on. But we aren't really completely sure, because the text makes no mention that this was indeed David's plan. But when we look at this section, we know there is something going on because of the way David explains himself in verse 10 to Achish. He tells him, What are you doing, David? And David says, we are making raids on Judah. That's Israel. Did you see? David's lying to Achish. He's trying to cover something up. Achish thinks David is raiding Israel when David is actually helping Israel. So this may exonerate David, doesn't it? Perhaps in our minds it does, but what do the Philistines think having this ruse pulled over them. They don't even know yet. So on to our next question. How was David received? How was David received amongst the Philistines? And we see that in twenty-seven, twelve, on in the first part of 20, chapter 28. Verse 12 of chapter 27, it's very clear how David received. And Achish trusted David. So the, the fires are tamed a bit about David's treasonous plans He is no traitor. He's acting for Israel. But in chapter 28, verses 1 through 2, the story re-escalates again. We see David's plan and cover-up working so well that Achish calls him from Ziklag to come be right next to him to be his bodyguard. And he wants David and his whole crew to go to war with him against the Israelites. So no longer can David camp out in his outpost in Ziklag and pull the wool over Achish's eyes. He needs to be right beside Achish every single day. But even worse, David very very well may have to fight against Israel, his very own kin. We've seen a number of times over the last eight chapters that David has made a vow not to lift his hand against Saul, the Lord's anointed. But with this new appointment to join King Akish and his forces, it puts David in a pickle, doesn't it? He may have to renounce his vow and fight with Akish and the Philistines against Saul and the Israelites. Or if he refuses, well, no doubt Akish would have him killed. So our text wants us to ask the question <laughs> did David overplay his hand? Has David's cunning plan been too clever? For his own good. What will David do now that he's in his bind? Now, if you were to keep reading in chapter 28, in verses 3 on into the end of the chapter, chapter, we'd see that we find nothing in chapter 28 to resolve this tension, this very tense situation. So that leads us to our next question. Why is our story, our very tense story, interrupted? See, for an entire chapter, we know nothing of what happens to David. And it's, in fact, not until we get to chapter 29 that we find out the answer of what happens. It's kind of like when you're watching the movie, in the middle of the movie, right at the most tense point, you have to go to the bathroom. Or the children spill the popcorn and you have to hit pause and clean up the spill. You really want to know what's happened. But this little interruption here in chapter 28 is more than just an annoyance. There's something more going on here. Because when we look at the geographical details of chapters 27, 28, and 29, we find that the story of chapter 28 happens actually after the story of chapter 29. So if we were to put these chapters in chronological order, it would go chapter 27, chapter 29, and then chapter 28 that happens right after. So for those of you who are really interested in how we know this, All you need to do is look at the geographical points listed in the beginnings of chapters 28 and 29, and you can figure this out. Our author, our editor of this book of 1 Samuel, has lifted the story of chapter 28 that happened after 29 and brought it right in the middle of this story, this tenth story of David, right in between 27 and 29. Why? What's going on here? What does our author want us to see? Well, it seems that our author thinks it's worth comparing what is going on with David at this point to what is going on with Saul at the point after, even though it happens later. Now, we're going to look more at the details of chapter 28 next week. But some of you may know very well this story in chapter 28 because it's one of the most unusual stories In the Old Testament, it's about Saul's encounter with who is often called the Witch of Endor. Now, at this point, you can insert whatever Star Wars joke that you want. She's a medium. She's a necromancer. And Saul knows that it's terribly wrong to consult a medium. But he does it anyway. Why? Look at chapter 28, verses 4 and 5. 28, 4 and 5. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. You see, both David and Saul are in terrible predicaments because of those pesky Philistines. And our author wants to see the comparison between these two kings, one enthroned and one appointed, Our author wants to compare what happens when they're both in this predicament with the Philistines. But more on that next week. Let's get back to our story. When when will our story get a resolution if we keep reading through chapter 28? Well, chapter 29 now comes on the scene and we finally figure out, we finally hear what happens with David. So I'm going to ask Charlene to come back up here and read for us chapter 29.
1: Chapter 29. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish, the commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years, and since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him, and the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back, that he may return to the place to where you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to the battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is this not David, of whom they sing to one another in dances, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands? Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest, and to me it seems right that you should march out and end with me in the campaign, for I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you, so go back now, and go peaceably, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? And Achish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, He shall not go up with us to the battle. Now then, rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you, and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines, but the Philistines went up to Jezreel.
0: Thank you, Charlan. So we get back to our story. David's in this pickle. And Achish says, I want David to be with me and his men when we fight against the Israelites. So Achish goes to his commanders and tells them this. And his commanders respond saying, wait a second, wait a second. We can't have a Hebrew and a bunch of Hebrews fighting with us against Hebrews, their own people. And especially we can't have David fighting with us, because after all, isn't David the one that they themselves wrote a little jingle, a little song about, that said he can kill and has killed tens of thousands of us Philistines? So Akish knows he's, in this sense, exercising good leadership. He doesn't want to go against the will of his commanders. He needs them on their side. So he relents, and he goes back to David in verse 7 and said, listen, there is no way that you and your men can fight with us. So in a slightly anticlimactic ending, David acquiesces and verse 11 tells, tells Achish to say, Very well then, we'll go on our way. And in verse 11 and 12, or verse 11, he goes on her way, his way back to Ziklag. Now, the very end of this story comes in chapters 30 and 31, but for now, we've answered most of our questions, haven't we? Our text raised to us this, this chilling tale That begged us to ask, what is going on with David? What's going on with God's plan? And we've seen the resolution this morning, haven't we? David does not defect. He does not fight with the Philistines against Saul and the Israelites. But there is one more question to be answered this morning. One question that really couldn't be answered until we sorted all these details out from these three chapters. But it's probably the most important question for us. And that question is this. Where is God in all of this? See, isn't it striking that through this entire story of 27 and 29, there's skin, a reference to God? You have there, just in 29, verse 6, the pagan king Achish swearing by the name of the Lord, and that is it in reference to God. And it's even more striking, when you look at the passage right after this one, turn to chapter 30, verse 6. Chapter 30, verse 6, and you see it says, and David was greatly distressed by all that's going on because the people st- spoke, astoning him. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God, You see that David is still robustly with God, and God is still robustly with David. But there's nothing like that in our text this morning. One of my favorite Old Testament commentators, Dale Ralph Davis, rightly asked of these two chapters, what do you do with a godless text? See, we can go back and forth on the positives and negatives of what David did here and there, but I actually think that misses the point of this text. And in fact, this whole book and many parts of the Bible, what this text is doing is pleading us to double down in our trust of the Lord. In other words, even though this is quite literally a godless text, God is clearly there. He's working, as he often does far in the backstage. Ordering events and situations so that in this case, David's dance with the devil, well, it ends up okay. At least in terms of him not having to strike his hand against Saul and his own people. He protects and preserves David, his life and his righteousness, because God has a plan for David. But there's one little textual cue that we missed that is worth going back to. Go back to chapter 27, verse 6. In the second sentence there. It says, after Achish gave Ziklag to David, it says, therefore, Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. That little cue tells us that this book was written or edited at a time much later than David, maybe even a few hundred years later. This was a time when the kingdom of Israel was divided into two, and the people of the southern kingdom were called the people of Judah, thus the reference to the kings of Judah in 27.6. And as this little tiny southern kingdom, they found themselves in very similar situations with their neighbors. No longer were the Philistines their enemies, but they had many enemies encroaching on their borders to come in to take over their land. See, what I'm saying is that the issue for these original readers of 1 Samuel is not the tension if David would become king. They very well knew that. They knew that when they started to hear 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. The issue for them is back to our question. What do you do with the godless text? Or more specifically for them, what do you do when God seems absent? And so I think this text served to them as kind of a a motivational history for them, not whitewashing their past, but showcasing that even in times like chapter 27 and chapter 29, God is still there working out his plan. And if he did so then, he'll do so again motivating them to keep their trust in the Lord and trusting in his promises through all the ups and downs of a tiny, insignificant kingdom in the 7th or 8th century BC. Trust God even when he doesn't seem to be there. Well, that was for them. What about for us? Well, this passage reminds us that in the happenings of life, God is absolutely working out his plan for this world. Even when he's so far in the background, it's like he's not even there. It could be from the mundane, everyday existence of doing the same things day after day after day, over and over again. How could God at all be using this life of mine, using it for his plans and purposes? could be all the way up to the dramatic, high-tension life situations that God has you in at work or at home or anywhere you are. The kinds of things that aren't overtly wrong or right, but the kind of daily happenings that just, well, they just happen. God is there working out his plan. And what is that plan? Well, we mentioned at the very beginning in talking about Abraham. It's the same plan given to Abraham thousands of years ago to have a people of his very own, to bless them and rule over them. Friends, I hope you know this morning, I hope you know that God is never absent. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, or you're playing around in the fringes of Christianity, that actually serves us as a sober reality. God is never absent. I also want you to know that I hope there is, I know there is never a moment when God is not working on this plan. We've already seen such a huge portion of this plan worked out in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is the true king. He is the only one in whom we can become the true people of God to accomplish this plan by you and I putting our trust in him and serving him all the days of our lives. And compared to the original hearers of this text, we have even more certainty, more motivational history to lean in on, to put our trust in. But don't mishear me. We aren't promised that things will get better today, or tomorrow, or any time, perhaps, in our lifetime. We aren't promised prosperity We aren't even promised deliverance from our enemies or our problems like David was delivered because David had a very special place in God's plan. So what are we promised? What can we take away? We're promised that tribulation, nor persecution, nor distress, nor danger, nor none of these things can separate us from the love of God and Jesus Christ. We're promised that something better than anyone or anything in this world could deliver to us is coming. We're promised a new creation where Jesus, God's chosen forever king, will reign forever. And we will be with him in glory and in joy. So what's our call to action this morning as we leave? I can't think of any better text than Hebrews chapter 12 to finish up with. Hebrews chapter 12 comes at the tail end of Hebrews 11 where we have that hall of fame of faith heroes. And at the end of chapter 11, it says, these people are commended because they had faith though they never received the full promise they were putting their faith in. And after that then, our author in Hebrews gives us that therefore, what should we do? What's our call to action on a text like this? Hear these words. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Brothers and sisters in Christ, would you join me in doubling down in our robust trust in the Lord? And when you falter, and if you doubt, come to us, go to each other, so that we together can look to Christ, the one who's done it. You join me in prayer. Father, we do thank you for working out your plan in all and every situation this life brings us. We thank you, Lord, that you've testified to your goodness, even when your name is barely mentioned. And we thank you, Lord, that you've given us certainty to these plans by sending your son, Jesus. Lord, may we look to him, the founder and perfecter of our faith, so that we do not look to ourselves, so that we do not look to the things and happenings of this world, so that we not waver, Lord, as we look out, but let us stand firm as we gaze upon and hear the Lord Jesus calling us to endure. Lord, we thank you that you promise that you will keep us through and through for this great plan you have for us, that one day, face to face, you will be our God and we will be your people. Lord, make this the true treasure of our hearts and minds this day and forever. Amen.